When we last left the apostles, Peter and John, they had been arrested. They were held overnight. The next day they were interrogated by the Sanhedrin. They made a brief defense, saying that they would have to obey God rather than men. After which, they were dismissed with a warning. Now, we already know that these disciples were often together. We know that they were a community of prayer. We saw a short prayer of theirs very early in the book of Acts when they prayed for the Lord's decision in the matter of who would succeed Judas as the 12th apostle. But in today's text, which is the Acts 4 reading, right? Today's text from Acts chapter 4, we have an extended example of how the early church prayed. And and since prayer reveals our deepest theological beliefs, right? It reveals them and it forms them, right? Prayer both reveals what we believe and it forms what we believe. And since we have here a lesson in ancient apostolic praying, this is a very instructive passage for us. So we're going to look at the text under the five headings that are there in your outline in the back of the bulletin. The first one is the invocation. So Peter and James, they're released. They go, the text says, to their friends, to their own, the early core of Christian believers, and they report to them what the Sanhedrin had said to them. And then, without delay, immediately, they take up the chief duty of Christian piety, the most powerful political action Christians are called to engage in. They pray. Prayer, Calvin says, the chief act of Christian piety. There's a beautiful, beautiful instinct here. Right? They're threatened. They're opposed. There are storm clouds gathering. It's ominous for the community. It becomes more and more so. And there's danger on the horizon. And when the community hears of it, we're told, they lifted up their voices together to God. There's this verticality. There's this vertical piety. They don't respond with anger. Right? They don't respond with disordered passion toward the Sanhedrin. They don't respond with contempt for their enemies. They don't grumble about the Sanhedrin. They're not afraid. Right? The early church has no other strategy than to worship, pray, and bear witness to the gospel of the risen Christ. That is the sum of their agenda. Worship God, pray, bear witness to the gospel. And they leave the results to God. And they begin this prayer with a note on the godness of God. Notice the first words of the prayer there in Acts 4. Sovereign Lord, they say. This is a unique word, actually. The word for sovereign Lord here is the Greek word despota. We get the word despot from it. Now, no tyranny like we usually associate with the word despot is implied. But the word does mean that the God whom they are evoking 
right, invoking, he holds the highest authority. He's the one with absolute authority. So notice, the first word of the prayer relativizes the authority of the Sanhedrin. Right? It takes the fearful, threatening universe and orders it correctly. Peter had said that they would stand with God over against human authority. And in one word, one Greek word, right? Order and proportion is brought to the foreboding situation. Sovereign Lord. Universal despot. It's the same word that the martyrs under the altar in heaven, right, who some of these disciples will soon be joining. It's the same word that the martyrs in Revelation 6 use when they cry out for vindication under the throne. How long, sovereign Lord, until you avenge our blood? So the Sanhedrin had issued prohibitions. You shall no longer speak. They had made threats. That's what they can make, threats. And the apostles here say, the sovereign Lord is the one who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Notice that in the text, right? Sovereign Lord, creator of all things. It's the language of the fourth commandment. Of the Sabbath. Right? The rationale for the Sabbath is given in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments themselves. And it says there this. For in six days the Lord, now notice the language here, made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Right? The cadences of the Torah are in the cadences of the apostolic church's prayers. Right? He made the heavens. He made the earth. He made the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So again, this invocation, this language is a reminder. The Sanhedrin might rule the temple precincts, but the despot, the sovereign Lord, rules heaven and earth. And he does so enthroned in glory in his heavenly serenity in his Sabbath rest. Turbulent as the situation is, the maker of heaven and earth is enthroned in Sabbath glory. And this same language, it's used repeatedly through scripture, but it's used relevantly, I think, in Psalm 146, where it's connected to God's deliverance of the oppressed, to his defense of the righteous. Here's Psalm 146. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. It's that God that the psalm says, who keeps faith, who executes justice for the oppressed, who sets the prisoners free. The whole petition, if we fast forward a little bit, also echoes King Hezekiah's prayer against the invading Sennacherib and his army in Isaiah 37. Here's what the king prays there. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. So now, God, he says, save us 
So this language, I want you to see, this language of making heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, this is not boilerplate language. This is the language of spiritual warfare. Right? The assertion that God is the creator and the maker of all things in heaven and earth is the place we start. In declaring God as the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, the church is declaring that he is king. That he's ruler of all. That he subdues all of his and our enemies. So it's a statement then that the one who is our hope, the one who made us, is omnipotent and he will come to our aid. So that's the invocation. So let's continue to note then the citation. They then quote from the scriptures, the creator God is also the God of special redemptive revelation. He's the one who speaks through the mouth of our father David by the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And notice what they quote here. They quote the first two verses of Psalm 2. Notice this, right? The prayer is like four lines old. Like they've taken like three or four breaths in this prayer. And they've already, you already have the cadences of the Torah and a citation from Psalm 2. So one of the things we learn from apostolic praying is apostolic praying is just infused with scripture. So they quote from Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, Psalm 2 in the original context would be read as speaking of the Gentiles gathered around Israel, opposing the rule of David, the king, who sits on Mount Zion. Notice the broad range of terms, Gentiles, peoples, kings, rulers. All of them, all of these Gentile forces, gathered together, conspiring against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ. Gathering together to attack the Davidic king who's installed on Zion. And that brings me to the third point, which is the exposition. So they cite Psalm 2. Here, by exposition, I mean, how do they read it? How do they interpret it in light of their circumstances? How do they apply it on the ground? How is it understood by the church at prayer? And here we see a Christ-centered reading. They, they, don't, they don't see the psalm as pertaining merely to David and his Gentile enemies. They see the psalm as foretelling the world's opposition to the greater David. To the Christ, to the anointed king, Jesus. Now, you may think this is a commonplace. We've been doing this for 2,000 years. But this is a radical move at this point. Right? So here's how they apply the quotation from Psalm 2 to their situation on the ground. In other words, here's how they're updating the Psalm's understanding in light of the fact that something epochal and monumental has happened. Namely, the Messiah has appeared and been raised from the dead. So verse 27, they say, for truly in this city, we're gathered together. That's the first link back to the psalm, which said that the kings and the rulers were gathered together. Notice they use the same language that's in the psalm in their prayer. They were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. So this this prayerful exposition continues. For truly in this city, we're gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. There's the next link. The Lord's anointed is ultimately not David, but Jesus the Christ. 
So who was gathered together against the Lord's anointed? Remember, in Psalm 2, it's the ruling, it's the Gentiles, the Philistines and the Edomites and the Syrians, right? They're, they're gathered around Israel. They're, they're opposing David. Who do they think was gathered against the Lord's anointed? Well, they say Herod and Pontius Pilate. Those are the kings and the rulers of Psalm 2. That's how we read it now. So we have Herod and Pontius Pilate gathered together against Jesus along with the Gentiles. Notice that, the nations, the Romans. Why did the nations rage or the Gentiles rage? That's another link back. But here's the last link, and it's shocking. And I, I, I hope you're following because I wanted you to get to this point. This is the key point takeaway right here. Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles, and then they say this, and the peoples of Israel. But Psalm 2 speaks only of Gentiles opposing the Davidic king. And the, and the prayer here identifies these Gentile peoples and includes the peoples of Israel. So here's the scandal. Right? This, is what, this praying this way can get you killed. What they are saying is Israel, as embodied in and under the authority of the Sanhedrin, Israel is now classed with the unbelieving Gentiles as raging against the Messiah and thus against the Lord. Right? An original reader of Psalm 2 would assume that only Gentiles are among the enemies of the Davidic king. But once the Messiah is revealed, his enemies are then revealed. And it turns out that his enemies scandalously and tragically now include the peoples of Israel. Notice the plural there. The peoples of Israel. Probably meaning Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews. Jews of the northern and the southern kingdom. Jews of the day, whatever Jews were involved at the time of Jesus' death. The peoples of Israel. So it's very, very provocative and scandalous reading. They're reading Psalm 2 in light of the appearance of Christ and his crucifixion. By the Romans, by the Gentiles, by Herod, by Pontius Pilate, but also by the peoples of Israel. And while these peoples were plotting and setting themselves and gathering together against the anointed one, what were they doing? The text says they were, in fact, gathered to do whatever God's hand and his plan had predestined to take place. J.I. Packer once said, everyone's a Calvinist on their knees. Right. This, is, this is what it means for the Lord to be sovereign. His raging enemies do whatever his hand and his will predestined to be done. We already saw similar language to this earlier in chapter 2. God delivered up Jesus according to his definite plan and foreknowledge. So God predestines. He foreordains. Right? These words are roughly synonymous. Right? He decrees all things, even the monstrous evil of Christ's execution, and he does so without contracting guilt or evil, and he does it all for his good purposes because he is the sovereign Lord, the despot, the ruler of heaven and earth. So the prayer already now shows you the centrality of the sovereign God and his Christ. It's a Christ-centered prayer. And to be Christ-centered is to be God-centered. To be God-centered is to be Christ-centered. That's the remarkable exposition of Psalm 2. Done, again, I want to note, 
just as the opening portion of a prayer. You know, we can do, we can do real theology in the middle of praying. There's no law against it. You can go ahead and do it. There's lots of examples. I mean, we don't want to be showing off or anything like that. They're not, they're not, they're not doing this for an audience. But there's abundant biblical precedent. right? Prayer is, sat, is to be saturated with Scripture in the community. You can't pull the community, its prayer life, and the text apart from each other. So the fourth point then is the petition. So here they finally ask for something. They've applied Psalm 2, originally about David, to Jesus. And now we see they extend the application to themselves right, and to their situation before the Jewish authorities. To oppose the apostles, they are saying, is also to oppose the Christ, is to oppose the Lord and his anointed. Right? Because the church fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So look at verse 29. Now, Lord, look upon their threats. Speaking now of the Sanhedrin's warnings, right? Not to speak any more in the name of Jesus. Look upon their threats. Now, again, notice they don't ask for the threat to be removed. They don't even ask for the threat to remain unfulfilled. Or for God to not allow them to suffer persecution. They don't ask for personal safety. They ask for the sovereign Lord, the creator of all things visible and invisible, to take note of the threat. And, and, here we finally get the request. Here's the request. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's it. That's the request. They had seen, the Sanhedrin had seen the boldness of Peter and John. And they wanted that boldness to continue in the apostolic community. So, note, it's the word, right? It's the word. Grant that your servants would proclaim your word with all bold. It's the word and only the word that the church is authorized to speak. Right? The, the church isn't called to incessantly weigh in about everything. She's bound to and she proclaims only the word of God. Right? To read the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts is to notice all the things that are going on in the Roman Empire and in the Greco-Roman culture of these cities that these proclamations of the gospel do not comment on. Right? All the things that are happening in the Roman Empire that could be commented on are not commented on, which is almost everything. In fact, scholars have noted how Paul has almost no concern for what's happening in the Roman Empire in his letters. Just when you read the New Testament, remember, you think we've got a lot of cultural stuff going on? They had a lot more. And almost none of it seeps into the text or the proclamation of the church. They proclaim the sovereign Lord, the risen Christ, they call men to repentance. Really doesn't matter if the culture's great, the culture's not great. The culture's in between, we have the same task. Proclaim the word of God with boldness. That's our vocation. And that's what they pray for. Remember, they don't even pray for the threat to be diminished or removed. They ask to pray the word, to proclaim the word with courage, with boldness. 
The idea here is we want God to give us clarity and power in the face of the fears that may or may not be out there. And the book of Acts, right, it demonstrates that this prayer was heard. The whole book demonstrates it. How does the book of Acts end? It ends with the other main actor in the story, the Apostle Paul, in prison. Pretty much the way the book starts, with the church arrested and the church in prison. And what's he doing in prison? He's preaching the kingdom of God. And we'll see what he prays for when he's in prison in a moment. So the prayer continues in verse 30. They want to preach the word with all boldness while God stretches out his hand to heal and and signs and wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant Jesus. Right? These, These wonders we've already seen, they authenticate the preaching. They do a number of things, but one of the things they do is they seal the gospel. And these, these healing miracles that the apostles had powers to do, they led to many conversions. But remember, not just the conversions. When you remember that the healing of the lame man is what triggered this whole crisis. Right? We know then that these signs will lead to the conversion of some, but they'll also lead to more trouble and suffering for the church as well. They do both things in the book of Acts. But again, I want you to notice this request for healing signs shows you the heart of the apostolic community. They they are being threatened. And they ask for miracles of mercy to attend their proclamation. They're not seeking for vengeance or destruction. Earlier earlier in Jesus' ministry, two of the apostles, they're rejected by Samaria. The Samaritans are half-breed Jews. They think they're less than them. And what do they ask Jesus to do? Call down fire on these people. But that ethos is now gone. Now they're like praying for signs that correspond to the restoration of the gospel and to the healing of the gospel and point to the new creation. Finally, last, the provision. That is the answer God provides. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were Notice this, the place in which they were gathered together. So, remember, the kings of the earth were gathered together against the Christ. There's that gathering, and then Luke is self-consciously pitting the apostolic prayer meeting, that gathering together of the church, over against the gathering together of the Gentiles and the nations and their rulers and their kings. So the church's gathering for prayer and worship is the decisive political gathering in the earth. There are two gatherings together, the gathering of Gentile kings and all their conspiracies and the gathering together of the people of God to pray. This is what the church should do in the light of the appearance of Christ, in the light of cultural threats. So they pray. And the place where they're together was shaken. This shaking, uh, Chrysostom said, the fifth century bishop It was a shaking which made them more unshaken. God's going to shake everything in heaven and earth so that the things which cannot be shaken remain. And they're all filled with the Spirit again. There's a fresh infilling of the Spirit of which the church stands in (coughs) perpetual need. These people had been filled at Pentecost, but they pray to keep being filled. Like we we are desperately thirsty in this sense, that we need the Spirit and the result is exactly what they prayed for. The te- you know, Luke tells you there at the end of the passage. They c- 
continued to preach the word of God with boldness. So this is what we need to pray for in the face of injustice, in the face of disorder, cultural disorder, in the face of overreaching authorities. We pray this. You should be concerned about the culture. We're living in uh, extraordinary times of disintegration and chaos and evil. But here's what you should do. You should do what the church does in Acts 4.23. This is what we do. Remember, Paul was in prison at the end of the book of Acts. And here's what he tells us in his Ephesians, at the end of Ephesians. He says, pray for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. He doesn't pray to be released from prison. He just prays, I'm in prison, I'm enchained. Let me preach the gospel clearly and with boldness. It was the gospel which provoked the crisis. It's the gospel which is the goal of the crisis. It's always about Jesus and the gospel. You can't go wrong if you remember that. That's what it's about. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel to your enemies. Preach the gospel in the midst of a cultural crisis. So God has promised, right? He has promised both suffering and persecution and that his preached word will gather his elect out of the world and his church will be built and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In short, God has promised to answer praying like this. He's promised to answer it. As I close, I just want to point out the Trinitarian nature of this boldness, okay? They are bold because God the Father is the despot, the sovereign creator, the Lord of heaven and earth. There's a beautiful statement in the Westminster Confession which teaches that the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, but after a most special manner it takes care of his church. And disposes all things to her good. Everything that's happening around us, which is so unnerving, rightfully so, is being disposed by the sovereign despot to your good and to the good of the church. They're bold in the Father and they're bold in the Son because the church that prays here and cites Psalm 2, they know that the rest of the Psalm teaches that God's Son is installed on the heavenly Zion, that He sits in the heavens and He laughs. He holds the nations in derision as they rage against Him. They know that Jesus, the Holy Anointed One, is now King, and He will inherit the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. So they're bold in the Father, they're bold in the Son, and they're bold in the Spirit sent from the Father and the exalted Son, who will in due time shake everything and quicken and enlighten every last sheep for whom Christ died, and who will remake not just these people, but the cosmos itself. So let us imitate then the boldness, the confidence the apostolic church has in the triune God, who rules and defends us, who overcomes his and our enemies. And let us pray as they pray. Let us pray with the cadences of the Torah and the Psalms infused into our prayers. 
And above all, pray for spirit-filled boldness to speak the word of God while God stretches forth his hand to do wondrous things in the earth. Amen.